Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and we are going to be looking at something that ought to make our hearts well up in praise and adoration to God uh, that He has spared us from judgment. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Father God, we thank you for this, your word. We never tire of looking into your word and examining our lives by it, and we pray that you would be glorified with the worship, with the repentance, with the expressions of our hearts uh, this morning, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, this morning I want to re-examine the life of Judas and Peter. Uh, this is a rather amazing juxtaposition of uh, two lives that in many ways are similar, and yet uh, the outcome of their lives is quite different. There was two people who denied our Lord, and yet one is exalted and the other is abased. One is saved and the other is damned for all of eternity. Uh, one of these people is uh, praised by God, and the other one is condemned. And here is the irony of this whole passage. One of those God deniers... The Apostle Peter is gently exposing another God-denier, Judas. Now, one of the problems for us 20th century people is from hindsight, we know Judas is a bad guy, okay? But uh, if, if we look at it from hindsight, knowing full well where Judas stood, uh, then we miss some of the tension that is in this passage. And there was enormous tension that was facing these disciples uh, and I want to uh, try to bring out a little bit of that uh, attention. I think for Peter especially, this must have been a hard thing for him to be preaching uh, this message because our tendency always is to avoid the people that we have betrayed uh, because we're so ashamed to be around them. And this is actually one of the differences between Peter and Judas. Peter, because of the, God's grace in his life, acknowledges his sin, and he is restored into fellowship, not only with Jesus, but with the body. Judas couldn't bring himself to do that. He couldn't bring himself to face the disciples or to face Jesus. And so it is one of the differences between them. But before I dig uh, deeply into this uh, text, I want to paint a picture of what the disciples first saw. Uh, scripture makes it very clear that prior to Christ's arrest, not one of the disciples even remotely suspected that Judas was not a godly man. 
He looked like a godly man. He talked like a godly man. He ministered like a godly man. In fact, he probably thought of himself as a godly man in many ways. There was hypocrisy in his life uh, with regard to the stealing from the common purse that they carried. But uh, who knows, even Judas himself may have convinced himself that everything was okay. At the last Passover, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Because of God's work of grace in their lives, their first impulse was not to think, oh yeah, which one of those other guys is this? I'm sure it's maybe one of him. No, they saw their own failings. They saw their own weaknesses, and the first impulse in their heart was to kind of draw in a breath and say, Lord, is it I? There, I mean, there's fear there. They recognize that any one of them could so easily fall uh, away from the Lord. And so that question, Lord, is it I, is a question I want you to be asking yourself, Lord, are there any ways in my life in which I'm failing to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ? We need to have self-examination from time to time. And it's been about... Uh, since 2005, since we've, uh, since we've done this, Paul was so concerned for the Corinthians' eternal welfare that he told them this, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. Now, anytime we uh, look at topics like this that are a little bit uncomfortable, we tend to back up and we tend to try to insulate ourselves from the Scripture's probing. Uh, our minds immediately begin to justify ourselves, and we think, well, yeah, I've been faithful to the Lord, and, and uh, God's answered my prayers, and there's evidences that I'm a believer, so I'm just going to be examining others who are around me. I'm not going to examine myself, but there could be two things that would be good outcomes from this. One is to allow the Word of God to do its impact in our lives and drawing us in faith to Him. And the other is to thank the Lord, say, Lord, I recognize how easily it would be for me to fall away from you just like Judas did, and I thank you for holding me. And I cling to you. I know in my weakness I need you every hour. Every hour I need you. But uh, uh, we should not think that it was the righteous deeds of Peter that distinguished him from Judas because Judas had many righteous things that he did as well. And you might say, well, the Bible is quite clear that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's absolutely right. But there's still righteousnesses that he calls them in Isaiah. And so Judas had some things that looked like they were the product of the Holy Spirit in his life. And it was not, so it's not his righteous deeds that distinguish him from Peter. Uh, Judas had many of those. And it's not his sins that distinguished him from Peter. Because Peter had a number of similar uh, sins in his life. Peter denied Christ three times and absolutely insisted that he did not know Jesus. He was distancing himself from Jesus. So it wasn't just uh, a lie. It wasn't just uh, fear uh, that he was engaged in and taking the name of the Lord in vain, he denied the Lord. And here's what Jesus said about everyone who denies him. Mark 10, 33. Whoever denies me before men, him I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So what Peter engaged in was something extremely serious. 
There were a lot of similarities between Peter and Judas. Both Peter and Judas lived in the fear of man. They both longed for the approval of man. Uh, both showed signs of hypocrisy. Both showed that they had a price uh, by which they were willing to sell their Lord and sell their soul. Uh, for uh, Judas, it was 30 pieces of silver, which is one month's wages. Not a whole lot of money uh, for him to sell himself out. For Peter, it was uh, the ability to get out of the prison that, uh, that Jesus was put into. Uh, both were tempted by Satan. In John 13, verse 2, it says that it was the devil who put that suggestion into Judas's mind uh, to betray his Lord. And uh, he had to agree with it. He's still responsible for that sin, but the devil put that. That wasn't in his, uh, his mind initially. And the Scripture indicates that the devil put into Peter's mouth a temptation in Matthew chapter 16 to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And Peter probably would never forget that rebuke when Jesus turned around, looked at him, says he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. It was Satan who put those words into Peter's mouth. And Luke 22 makes it very clear that Satan was involved in Peter's later denial of the Lord. Here's what Jesus said. Lord said to Simon, 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 indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And I love those words. I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. It was that, that prayer of Christ that kept Peter from turning into a Judas. And it's that prayer of Christ alone that keeps us from being any different than Judas. Any one of us uh, could uh, betray uh, Christ uh, just as Judas did. Anyway, he said, I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And so it's an unhealthy self-confidence. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. No, we dare not think that Judas uh, was a greater sinner than Peter. That is not the issue that kept one safe in the arms of Jesus and the other one being snatched into hell in the arms of Satan. And we might be tempted to think, okay, well, it's uh, uh, not his sins, but maybe it's his godly character, because after all, Peter showed a great deal of godly character. Think of the courage that Peter had when he went. He was ready to slice off the ear of of uh, the servant, he was ready to fight on behalf of, uh, 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 of Jesus. And it's true, he did, he did have courage in certain circumstances. And so you can't pit his fear in one circumstance against his courage in the other. But I want to point out that Judas was very courageous as well. Judas stuck with Jesus through thick and through thin. He was there when the crowds were trying to push Jesus over the cliff. He was there when the demoniac came running at them, wanting to tear them to pieces. He was there through many, many dangerous situations. <clears throat> Let me read you a, a passage in John 6. There was a massive number of disciples that departed from Jesus. It says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the, the twelve continued with Jesus even though it was not the popular thing to do. Now, could Judas have claimed to have been faithful? I think he could have. He stuck with Jesus through thick and through thin. And yet the very next verse says, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? So the courage to follow is not what made the difference. Judas was unsaved despite the fact that he showed many of the same characteristics as the other eleven did. Things like faithfulness, courage, patience, loyalty. Now they were counterfeits. We'll look at that in a moment. But the point is, they were very good counterfeits. Uh, they made everybody else convinced he was a genuine believer. When Jesus said in John 11, verse 7, Let us go to Judea again, the disciples said, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus insists that they go, and it's Thomas, not Judas. It's Thomas who says, Let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, they all knew this was dangerous. And yet Judas was willing to risk that danger too. And keep in mind, it was not for another two chapters before Satan puts into his mind the idea of betraying Jesus. He hadn't even thought of that before. Stealing, yeah. But he had never thought of betraying uh, Jesus prior to this. And so Judas is a conundrum. Conundrum is something puzzling. It's something perplexing. Both he and Peter preached the gospel for three years. So Judas is a preacher. And he was probably a very, very good preacher. He was up here in the pulpit just like I am, and he was preaching his heart out to the multitudes, and he must have been good preaching, otherwise the others would have suspected him and wondered about him long before. Both were friends of Christ. Even on the night of Christ's betrayal, Jesus calls him friend. Psalm 41, verse 9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so you can be a friend of Jesus and still be unsaved. Both witnessed the miracles of Christ, and according to the Scripture, both of them performed miracles. That's an amazing thing. Judas performed miracles, and I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Both of them had been warned by Christ that they would betray him, and so they both had ample time to repent one did repent eventually, but the other failed, failed to. At least five times, Jesus warned the disciples that one of them would betray him. And one after another, the disciples said, Lord, is it I? And uh, perhaps out of pressure, it says the same about Judas. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Now that could have been a time where he would have broken down in tears and repented and said, Lord, I, I, I am a great sinner. I have had these thoughts about you. Please forgive me. I plead your atonement. He could have done that, but he did not. And any one of us could be in the same situation. I've had times in my life where the Spirit of God has convicted me of something and I've blown it off. That's exactly what Judas did. Someone might grab onto that statement with hope and say, hey, but at least, at least I have wept over my sins. I can identify with Peter who wept bitter tears. But the thing I would say to you is you are not justified by how much you weep. There are going to be plenty of people weeping in hell. Judas wept. That's not how we are saved. <clears throat> 
Uh, there is a an outline when I actually get this put up onto the web that I'd love you to read. It's by Cal Cahoon, one of the greatest Scottish preachers. He preached in the late uh, 1700s and into the early 1800s. But it's an essay on evangelical repentance versus counterfeit repentance, and he deals with at least eight contrasts between them. And uh, because not all of those things are in Acts chapter 1, I'm going to encourage you guys to just read it. I'll put it on the, on the web for you. But Satan can sometimes produce counterfeits of God's graces that are so good that many, many people are fooled. Uh, some think people think that repentance is merely an intellectual assent. We get our kids to, to agree, yes, Dad, I sinned. Okay, that's intellectual assent. But that's not full-orbed repentance, and we shouldn't be satisfied with that with our children. Judas acknowledged that he had sinned against Jesus. Uh, he went to the... Uh, the uh, the priests and he said that uh, he had sinned uh, against. He says, "I have sinned by betraying innocent blood." So there is the intellectual agreement: "I'm a sinner. What I did was wrong," and yet he did not have evangelical uh, uh, repentance. Some people say, "Okay, it's not just intellectual assent; it's our emotions being regretful over that." And you know, we tell our kids, "Say you're sorry," and the kid who probably doesn't feel sorry says. I'm sorry, uh, but we recognize, okay, there's not a genuine repentance there. God's Spirit has to engender that, but I would say just having evangelical remorse is not enough because Matthew 27, verse 3, uses the same word that's used of the prodigal son of Judas. It says Judas was remorseful. It's the Greek word um, uh, metamelamai, which means to be sorry, to to regret sometimes is translated as repent, and yet the Scripture indicates even that can be counterfeited by the world. 2 Corinthians 7.12 says that this too uh, can be either in believers or unbelievers, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And others say, and very rightly so, that repentance has got to have three things in it. It's got to have intellectual agreement with God. It's got to have our emotions engaged. And it's got to have a, an action of our will where we're turning from our sins and perhaps we're giving restitution. But think of Judas. Even that can be a confusing thing in his life because he returns to the temple and he says, look, what I've done is wrong. And he tells the priests that he didn't want to have anything to do with this betrayal. And uh, when he cannot convince them that they are wrong, he throws the 30 pieces of silver onto the temple floor. And you could say, well, is that not a turning away from his sin? And uh, I think we'd have to say, uh, no, it was not, because he never repented and turned in front of others. Uh, what he did is uh, he, didn't, he w didn't want his conscience to feel troubled uh, over this, and he was grieved at being known as a sinner, but he had a social conscience that was more um, dealing with what other people thought. See, the priests already know he's a sinner, so it's no, no difficulty for him to confess to them. They already know it, right? But there's no turning to Christ. There's no going back to the apostles and turning away, and there's no turning away from his other thefts and the other issues of his heart. And so what I want to do, I want to go through Acts 1, 15 through 20, phrase by phrase, Use it as a vehicle of self-examination, but also uh, as we come to the Lord in faith to say, Lord, 
I am so grateful that by your grace you have kept me from being a Judas and I want to cling to your cross, rejoice in your cross every day of my life. Uh, take a look first of all at verse 15. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and those are the words I want to really comment on. In the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of names was about 120 and said. The first difference that we see between Peter and Judas was that restoration was more important for Peter and getting his conscience feeling better was more important for Judas. Uh, restoration was more important for Peter than saving face. And so the Gospels indicate Peter immediately ran back to the Lord. He immediately confessed to the disciples. He let them know exactly where he stood. He freely admitted his guilt. Now that's a hard thing for our flesh to bear. It was hard for Judas to bear. Now, as I mentioned, uh, Judas certainly told the priests uh, what he has, had done, but hey, these are fellow conspirators. He's just telling them, this is not such a wise thing that we're engaged in. But it was not as difficult for him to go to the priests and tell them that he had sinned than it would have been to go to Jesus or to go to these other disciples. It's quite a different thing. He should have said, Jesus, I come to you. I'm not worthy to be your servant. I have sinned against you, but I plead the atonement that you are going to be giving on the cross. I ask for your forgiveness. Think how hard it would have been for him to go back to the disciples because uh, Judas would have thought, you know, these disciples are going to hate me. They're going to reject me. Maybe they'll beat me up. Who knows what they'll do, but I just cannot bear the shame of going before them. Instead, he should have said, you know, no matter what you think of me, I turn from my sin. I recognize the heinousness of what I have done, and I plead your forgiveness. Anyway, you can see why uh, Judas did not do it. Uh, apart from grace, none of us wants the full restoration that God calls us to. We just want to get rid of those terrible feelings. Uh, Judas hates the terrible feelings, but the thought of facing shame is just too much. And so here's the first subtle difference between Judas and Peter. Judas was focused on getting rid of bad feelings. He hoped that by returning to the priests, he could talk them out of it, the plan would not go ahead, and Jesus and the disciples would be none the wiser. At least he'd get rid of his bad feelings. Whew. I shouldn't have done that, and now we're not going to do with it, and they don't know, good, we can move on. And when that plan failed, he had only one other set of options. Uh, the option was to crucify his pride or to commit suicide. And believe it or not, for Judas, committing suicide was better uh, than to crucify his pride, the shame of the cross. And I remember this very struggle that Judas had occurring in my own soul during my high school year uh, last year of high school and it was the two years after three years of misery that i went through in my conscience and uh, i've looked back at that time and i've wondered what in the world was wrong with me that i would suffer for three years rather than face the shame of other people knowing about these sins that the spirit of god had convicted me i need to do deal with and it's so easy for any of us and we will struggle with that all of our lives apart from god's grace even as a pastor to confess to the congregation some sin, that's so hard on the flesh, and yet it's something God calls us to do. But anyway, 
That was my biggest struggle in my life. Age 19, the two years that followed, the Spirit of God convicted me over two sins that I needed to con- uh, confess. One was that uh, in my last year of high school in, uh, up in Canada, I was in government school, I had cheated on my final exam in order to pass my math exam. I, I, I just felt that was the only way I was going to pass. And immediately after that, the Spirit started convicting me, and I tried to put it out of my mind. The other sin that I was convicted over was when I was in boarding school in Canada, uh, not Canada, boarding school in Ethiopia, I was perpetually hungry. It was a growth spurt year, and I was just always starving, and I had stolen some potatoes uh, one day. And the Spirit of God was working on me, working on me, convicting me that I needed to do that. And I confessed to the Lord. It's easy to confess to the Lord. He already knows you've sinned, right? Just like uh, Judas was found it easy to confess to the priests. They already knew that he sinned. But to confess to others, that was the difficult thing for me. And the longer I waited to confess, the harder it became for me to do that. I went to Bible school then, and I suffered all through that first semester. It was only toward the end of the semester that I finally dealt with it. But I just found it was too humiliating to admit to my parents, to admit to the boarding school, to admit to the government school and the Bible school. What if they found out? I'd get kicked out of Bible school maybe. And so I was thinking in my mind, Lord, I've confessed this to you many times. They don't even know about it. Why can't we just keep it between you and me? And uh, he would not uh, give me any peace about doing that. And then I thought, you know what? It's better if that government school does not know what a terrible testimony that would be, you know, for Christians to be cheating on an exam. That would be a bad testimony. And so we, we just won't deal with that. And the Spirit's almost like he was saying to me, so you think it's a better testimony to be a hypocrite and to pretend that you're righteous? Well, and uh, I just had a hard time. I thought of all kinds of rationalizations. And then when I was thinking about the sin that I'd committed at the, the, the Christian boarding school, the rationalizations I had for that sin as to why I should not confess it utterly contradicted the rationalizations that I had as to why I shouldn't confess to the uh, secular government school that I had gone to. And then I thought, Lord, it's just a potato. You know, what, what's the big deal? And after all, my parents have spent money for me to go to that boarding school. It's, it's, it's like that potato belongs to me anyway. I would have eaten it if I hadn't stolen it. Uh, I would have gotten it at the dinner table at some point. And uh, I tell you, the spirit would argue back. I'd say, Lord, it really wasn't a sin. And the spirit would say, you know, why did you confess it to me then? You knew it was a sin, didn't you? <laughs> and the arguments went back and forth, back and forth. Three years until finally I gave in and I wrote a letter to the government school in British Columbia and I said, I'm a Christian and the Holy Spirit has been convicting me that I should not have cheated on that final exam. And this is a, a not only an offense against Christ and a terrible testimony of what a Christian should do, but... Uh, I've sinned by lying to you as well, and I am willing to take my whole course of math over again. I'm in college, but I'm willing to take that over again and, and to do restitution. I did a similar letter to the um, boarding school in Ethiopia, sent along a $10 check to cover the potato plus restitution plus interest. That was the most expensive potato I've probably ever eaten. <laughs> But immediately, I felt relief and the joy of the Lord that I was right with him. And then it struck me, you know, 
this is really easy. Why did, why did I struggle for three years to resist the Holy Spirit? But that's what the, our flesh does. It hates to be crucified. It hates uh, to open ourselves up and to expose ourselves. We would rather die like Judas than humble ourselves before man. And this just highlights in my mind, oh, what an incredible work of grace God has to do in our lives before we will walk the, the road of the cross. It's just an amazing thing. And we can thank God, Lord, I would be just as blind, just as stubborn as Judas, if you had not allowed, uh, continued to work in me and allowed me to do that. Well, anyway, God's grace was powerfully at work in Peter's life to humble him and to restore him. And I should point out, Jesus did not make it easy. You know, sometimes we make things a little bit too easy, but Jesus really was making Peter humbled before his grace. See, his desire is not that we uh, instantly become comfortable in our sin. His desire is we hate our sin with a passion. We hate the deceitfulness of sin. Now, because Peter had denied the Lord three times in John chapter 21, three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And in the Greek, it's very interesting. First time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you have, literal Greek is agape love for me, more than these. Agape love is the highest form of love, self-sacrificing love, God-given love, and because Peter had claimed that he was more faithful to Christ than all of the others, even if everybody else denies you, I will never deny you, that, that confident statement that he had given. So Jesus said, oh, okay, do you love me with agape love more than these? Well, Peter doesn't dare to even claim he has agape love, let alone that he has more than the others. And so Peter says uh, to him, you know that I have affection for you. Excuse me, phileo love. Phileo love in the margin says affection. That's, it's a different kind of love. It's a friendship love. So a second time, Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you have agape love for me? So this time he's not saying, do you have agape love more than the others? Do you even have agape love? And Peter says, you know that I have affection for you. Then verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you have affection for me? And it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you have affection for me? He's not grieved because he says something three times. He's grieved because the last time he even questions his phileo love. And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I have affection for you. And Jesus ends that discourse by saying, follow me. That's what evangelical repentance is all about. It's restoration to Jesus. It's not about making ourselves feel better. It's about restoration to Jesus. And even when Peter says, well, what about those other disciples? He says, what is that to do? You follow me. It's about restoration to the foot of the cross, clinging to Jesus. Now, that was a really tough interview for Peter to be restored to fellowship. And some of you might have your own tough interviews, maybe even today. Maybe God's Spirit might be convicting you of something today. And it's a tough thing to try to be restored to God the way that He desires. Not sweeping sin under the carpet like uh, husbands and wives and children many times will do. Do not take the easy way out. Do not minimize your sin and do not fall into any of the counterfeit kinds of repentance that are out there. Again, recommend Calcahoon's article that I'll put onto, onto the website. 
Uh, but uh, uh, God wants us to walk by grace, not by the flesh. And only true repentance and faith. By the way, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Where you find one, you're going to find the other. And faith always receives the joy and all of the blessings from the Lord. But it's only in the presence of genuine repentance. And so only true repentance and faith can enable you to stand up in the midst of the brethren that you have betrayed and have joy and security in Jesus Christ. That's the cool thing about Christianity because it gives us such a Godward focus. We don't care about the opinion of man. It's just the same with Paul that I mentioned three or four weeks ago. It was genuine repentance and faith that enabled Paul to say that he didn't care what others thought about him. He had murdered many Christians and perhaps some of the Christians that he fellowshiped with uh, had relatives that were, that were killed. And it would have been very easy for him to cringe and to avoid them. But he said, no, I can joyfully stand in the midst of the brethren because I'm secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, this deals with the mystery of the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's human responsibility. Both are true. Luke 22, verse 22, Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So Jesus had to be betrayed. It was predestined that he be betrayed. And yet Judas couldn't use the excuse, Oh, I couldn't help it. It was just predestined that I do this. It's not my fault. It's God's fault that I betrayed him. No, Judas wanted to betray Jesus for those 30 pieces of silver. He was fully responsible for what he did. See the same emphasis in Acts 2, verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, and then he calls them to repent. Now, why would they have to repent if it's been determined from before the foundation of the world that Jesus would be crucified? It's because you never, ever can pit divine sovereignty against human responsibility. One does not cancel out the other. They are both absolutely true. And so this is the second thing that we see in Peter. Even though he recognizes God is sovereign over all of these things, he does not excuse his own sin, and he does not excuse the sin of Judas based on God's sovereignty. And this is one of the works of God's grace. How you can tell counterfeit from true, true repentance always owns up to its own responsibility. Now, you might not think that you blame God for anything that you have done, but how many times have I heard in the counseling sessions I can't help it. It's just the way I am. Excuse me? It's just the way I am? No, God says that you can overcome your sins. Or that's my personality. You're asking me to be something that I am not. See, you're, what you're doing when you say that is you're pawning your responsibility off of yourself and onto some, something or somebody else. Other times people will blame the circumstances that God brought into their lives. Hey, it's my wife. If you had to live with a woman like that, uh, you would do the same thing. Or um, they'll blame it on their genetics. I can't help my sexual desires. It's just the way I'm hardwired. And Peter will have nothing whatsoever to do with that. While God is sovereign, 
we must take responsibility for our sins. Do not blame your environment because that is ultimately blaming God's providence. Do not blame your genes. That is ultimately blaming God's providence. Do not blame your upbringing. Do not blame anything except for your own wicked heart. And uh, because of that heart, out of that heart flows every sin according to Jesus. So take full responsibility and repent. Okay, third point. Verse 16 goes on, it says, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. I want you to notice, Judas did not arrest Jesus. He was just a guide. And he could have rationalized in his mind, hey, it's not me, it's the high priest. And anyway, Jesus could get out of this just like he's gotten out of every other escape before. All I'm doing is I'm a guide. I'm not implicated in this sin. And it's very easy for us to do the same thing. But if you're an accomplice, you are guilty of the crime. And we parents sometimes are accomplices of our children's sins because we do not discipline our children. We just let our children go on because we want our children's favor. We are guilty of those sins. Uh, you know, a lot of people try to talk about how far distant from the sin that they are, but think of it as a spider's web. When you fly... It doesn't matter whether you fly into the center of that spider web or part of one of your wings is caught on just the edge of the spider web. The spider's got you either way, right? So it doesn't matter if you're 90% at fault, 10% at fault. It doesn't matter. The spider's got you, and you will not get out of that web unless you take the way of the cross, which is crucifying your flesh, taking the shame of the cross and saying, Lord, take me through the shame into the joy and the liberty of the sons of God. Okay, point four. Verse 17 says, He was numbered with us. Now, to me, this speaks of the incredible opportunities that Judas squandered. He was one of the twelve. So it's not just the evil that he did, but it's the opportunities that he wasted. You know, people don't tend to know of all, all the sins of omission, the opportunities that have been squandered, but the Bible indicates we're going to be judged for those as well. Now, let me give you an example from Matthew 11. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Capernaum was going to have a greater judgment than Sodom. Why? Because they had greater light. Judas was going to have a greater judgment than Sodom. Why? It's not because he was a more vile sinner. In fact, I don't think you could get more vile than the sins that the Sodomites had engaged in. The reason Judas would receive a greater judgment is because he had greater light, and he didn't live by that light. And uh, we can think of ourselves as, a, as well. America has been the land of opportunity. We've had incredible opportunities in America that we have squandered, 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 and we're going to receive more judgment from God than Sodom and Gomorrah unless we repent. Why? Because we've had greater light. 
And I believe that those of you in this church who have done nothing with your Christianity are going to be judged with a greater judgment than people from Billy Bob's uh, church uh, down the road, you know, who hasn't really been given a whole lot. Why? Because you have been given greater light and you have a greater responsibility before God. So true repentance doesn't just look at the heinous, vile sins. It looks at the secret sins of the heart. It hates all sin, anything that alienates us from God. Point five, Judas also squandered incredible influence. Verse 17 says that Judas obtained a part in this ministry. Now, it doesn't say he thought he was ministering. No, he had part in this ministry. God was using Judas in ministry. He worked through him. So don't think that the only basket that wasn't filled with the leftover loaves and fishes was Judas's. You know, everybody else has got a big heaping basket, and he's coming and kind of hiding his. No, his was heaped over as well. God used Judas in that miracle of the multiplying of the loaves and fishes. In chapter uh, 9 of Luke, it says that uh, all 12 went out, casting out demons, doing miracles. All 12 of them reported to Jesus the amazing things that God had done through them. That means Judas did miracles. He cast out demons. And um, in Hebrews 6, it says that... um, It's possible for the Holy Spirit to work through those who have never been saved in the first place. They have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, tasting of the powers of the age to come is experiencing miracles. And this has puzzled some Christians. They wonder, how in the world can a person who is not elect, somebody who is not saved, how could he possibly be doing things that only believers can do? And the answer to that question is that um, God works in His grace corporately through the whole body. There's a corporate grace, and we've got to distinguish between, have I just experienced corporate grace because of the other believers in our community, or have I experienced individual grace? Let me give you an example. I've read the autobiography of Charles Templeton, He was an incredible evangelist and over time became an atheist through compromises here and there that left him without any sense or sensibility. And later on, he started writing books to disprove Christianity, a virulent atheist. And the odd thing about this is that it started off with little things. Actually, I guess it was a pretty big thing. His first compromise was six-day creationism. But people uh, think in hindsight, yeah, well, he was a fake anyway. Well, he was a fake. That's obvious. But he didn't know he was a fake at the time. Nobody else around him knew that he was a fake. And he engaged in amazing ministry just like Judas did. Absolutely amazing. There were tens of thousands of people up in Canada who came to a genuine saving knowledge of the Lord through his ministry and are still sound believers uh, to this day. And um, many Christians were strengthened in their faith, and God worked powerfully through him. Let me give you one example, and at this stage in Templeton's life, he had already begun doubting some of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith, and he didn't think that God healed. Uh, He had great doubts about that, but listen to this portion of his autobiography. I had, when requested, prayed for the sick many times, never effectually, I never preached on faith healing, seldom referred to it, and was publicly critical of evangelists who majored in it. 
I regard it as peripheral and in the hands of charlatans dangerous. Nevertheless, one Sunday afternoon, I went to one of those small box-like frame houses common to Toronto's East End at the request of a woman who attended the church. Her infant daughter had been deformed, uh, born deformed. The large muscle on the right side of the neck was attached to the left collarbone, binding the baby's head to the left. As I understood it, there was some conjunction of the muscle and the jugular vein that made it impossible to correct the problem surgically. Once a week, the woman took the infant to the hospital for sick children for muscular rehabilitation. The baby's head was repeatedly twisted to the right to stretch the muscles so that in later years she would be able more or less to face the front. The mother was required to repeat the therapy for 10 minutes each day despite the baby's screams. Finding it unendurable, she importuned me to come and pray that the infant be healed. I went reluctantly, feeling like a mountebank. The baby was in the bedroom in its crib. I put some olive oil on my fingers, kneeled with the mother, put my hands on the infant and prayed. I had no expectation that the child would be healed. With the glib words on my tongue, I was thinking about the woman, about her pain, and about how disheartened she would be when the baby was unchanged and months of agonizing therapy lay ahead. At the close, we rose to our feet and returned to the living room. I was questing in my mind for sentiments with which to buoy up her courage and ease her disappointment. We sat for a few minutes talking, I in a chair and she on the Chesterfield opposite. I asked, wasn't the baby's head bound to the left? The baby was looking to the right and then turned to face me. The woman fainted and as she began to slide to the floor, I caught the baby and placed it on the Chesterfield. When the woman revived, she was near hysterics. I told her to report what had happened to the hospital. Four years later, New World, a Canadian imitation of Life magazine, came to me looking for a story idea. They planned to do a feature in their Easter edition under the heading, What My Faith Means to Me. I sent them to the woman and to the sick children's hospital. They ran the story in a full-page picture of the mother and child, now a young girl, and manifestly normal. Now keep in mind, he's writing this from the perspective of an atheist who doesn't believe in miracles, does not believe there is a God, and yet he doesn't know what to do with this. This is just a mysterious thing for him. He goes on. Not long afterwards, I encountered another instance of instantaneous healing. My aunt, Ada Points, a graduate nurse, and my mother's youngest sister, was terminally ill with what was described to me as stomach cancer. Exploratory surgery had discovered that the malignancy was inoperable. She suffered greatly from adhesions and was bedridden. There was little point in her remaining in the hospital, and in those days, before Medicare, the costs would have been prohibitive. She was sent home to live out the rest of her days with my mother. Mother insisted that I come to the house and pray for Ada. I went again with reluctance and that sense of embarrassment I invariably felt when asked to pray for healing. I had investigated many claims of faith healing over the years and had never seen any instance that seemed to me authentic. I couldn't account for what had happened to the baby's neck, but was by no means convinced that it was as a result of divine intervention. I placed my hands on my aunt's body and began to pray. The moment was intensely emotional. My mother was praying and weeping. My aunt was gasping in an agony of hope. Oh, God, please, please, God. As I was praying, 
I felt something akin to an electrical charge flow through my arms and out my fingers. I, remember, I remembered the incident in which the woman suffering from an issue of blood touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed. Jesus stopped and said, Who touched me? Peter remonstrated with him, What do you mean, who touched you? There's a crowd pressing us, jostling us. No, Jesus said, Somebody touched me. I felt power go out of me. I wondered if what I was feeling was what Jesus had spoken of. Afterwards, there was the usual mutual encouragement, the trying to have faith, when I returned home, the telephone was ringing. It was my aunt who had not been out of bed for weeks. Chuck, she said, half laughing, half in tears, but far from hysteria. I've been healed. I really have. Mother came on the phone. It's absolutely incredible. She's been walking around. She's been up and down the stairs, Chuck. She's healed. There's no doubt about it. There was no return of the malignancy. The adhesions ended. She outlived the rest of her brothers and died 42 years later at the age of 87. How do I account for these two instances of apparently instantaneous healing? I cannot. They certainly didn't happen because of my faith, nor do I believe they resulted from divine intervention. Having investigated faith healing over many years, I have no doubt that occasionally men and women are healed of actual illnesses. I'm not speaking of those illnesses that are hysteric in nature, symptoms of an underlying psychological problem, nor of those healings that are undoubtedly remissions, the temporary subsistence of symptoms or pain. Nor again am I referring to the so-called healing seen on television when the ailing victim is anesthetized by the intensity of the moment and becomes able, if only for a brief period, to bend a painful back or walk on a crippled limb. I am opposed to the public healing services of contemporary evangelism. Occasionally, a form of cure may be affected, but the good done is minuscule compared to the harm. Television healing evangelism is a fraud, and on many points he's probably right on that. The healers are often simpletons or rogues or both, living off the avails of medical bunkum. They knowingly mislead, leaving behind them emotional wreckage and illnesses often worsened by neglect. Despite all this, I'm convinced that what may loosely be called faith healing is an area of medicine with unrealized potential. Now, obviously, he's trying to explain away these healings. He knows he cannot. God's grace was working through him. Not because he was a vehicle of grace, but because he was part of the corporate church, part of the covenantal community. He was in the covenant. So don't think just because God has answered your prayers or done miracles through you that you're saved. Judas did miracles as well. And by the way, Templeton talks about incredible experiences that he had that many people, you know, they base their assurance on these. Remember, we're justified by faith in the finished work of Christ. We're not justified by experiences that we have had. But at one point, he was in Princeton getting a degree, and he had an experience that many people would say, that is a manifest work of God in his life. And yet, from hindsight, he did not see it that way. He says, in my second year... In imitation of Mohandas Gandhi, who remains one of the formative influences on my life, I decided to fast each week, Wednesday, eating nothing and drinking only water. 
Seven nights a week, in all kinds of weather, I went walking on the golf course between the seminary and the Institute for Advanced Study, not to pray so much as to articulate the almost intolerable yearning I was feeling. And he, he, he talks about this yearning for God uh, that he had. He went on, sometimes simply focusing all my faculties on the infinite, straining to grasp what theologians like to call the mysterium tremendum. One night, I went to the golf course rather late. I had attended a movie, and something in the film had set to vibrating an obscure chord in my consciousness. Standing with my face to the heavens, tears streaming, I heard a dog bark off in the distance from somewhere faintly, eerily, a baby crying. Suddenly I was caught up in a transport. It seemed that the whole of creation, tears, flowers, clouds, the skies, the very heavens, all of time and space, and God himself was weeping. I knew somehow that they were weeping for mankind, for our obduracy, our hatreds, our 10,000 cruelties, our love of war and violence. And at the heart of this eternal sorrow, I saw the shadow of a cross with the silhouetted figure on it, weeping. When I became conscious of my surroundings again, I was lying on the wet grass convulsed by sobs. I had been outside myself and didn't know for how long. Later, I couldn't sleep and trembled as though with a fever at the thought that I had caught a glimpse through the veil. For the next few weeks, I sought to repeat the experience. It never occurred. It recurred. I, I recognized it to be a mystical experience and in the library poured through books on the subject. The literature is not extensive, but I learned that what had happened to me was not unusual. It has been a commonplace at various times in the history of the church. More important, I learned that it was of no special significance. Mystical experience has added no insight to our knowledge of God or to Christian doctrine. Indeed, the experience is not uniquely religious. The poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow could go into a transport at will merely by repeating his name aloud. Just incredible, incredible how close to the kingdom a pers person can be and yet to be so far away. And I've read testimonies on various atheist websites of pastors whom I knew to be pastors and, and members of churches who have described their incredible experiences and they have abandoned the faith and they're fighting against Christianity. Now some people believe that such people have lost their salvation. I don't believe that. Scripture affirms if you're truly saved, you will never lose your salvation. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.16. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. He said if they leave the faith, they never had the faith in the first place. That's First uh, John 2.19. So rather than saying that people like Judas and Charles Templeton have lost their salvation, I think it's better to say they had experienced corporate faith, but had never experienced individual faith. They had tasted of the powers of the age to come, but they had never tasted of Christ and His salvation. I want you to turn with me to Matthew 7 because this is a passage that kind of pulls all of this together. And uh, we're going to begin at verse 21. Matthew 7, beginning at verse 21. 
Not everyone who says to, me, says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? They think they've prophesied, and it's interesting, Jesus does not contradict them. He doesn't deny that they had prophesied. There are many people. Saul, Balaam prophesied. The New Testament is quite clear. He was not regenerate. And yet God's Spirit prophesied through them. So anyway, they say, we have prophesied. Have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Done many wonders in your name. And again, he's not denying they cast out demons or that they did miracles. The inability of the sons of Sceva to cast out demons in Acts chapter 9 is because they weren't in the covenant. They weren't in the church, right? They were individuals. So uh, God honors the church many times, and he honors the prayers of the church, even if those prayers are from Judas. But I want you to notice Christ's interpretation of all of this in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He didn't say, I once knew you, but you've lost your salvation, so I don't know you anymore. He said, I never knew you. They never were uh, connected to him. They never were other than covenantally. They never were saved. Even though they were in the church, did miracles, prophesied, he did not know them. And so if your confidence is like Judas's, that you've engaged in ministry and God's ministered to the lives of other people, that is not enough. It is faith in the finished work of Jesus. Back to Acts 1 and verse 18. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. That's an interesting phrase because Judas didn't want to purchase this field. Those silver coins were burning a hole in his pocket and in his hand. He threw them on the, on the temple floor, but they stuck to him like glue, that blood money did. Self-reformation never works. Anyway, uh, the Gospel of Matthew records how Judas purchased this field. It happened after his death. The Pharisees being self-righteous and the Sadducees being self-righteous like they were, uh, they could not receive blood money. And they didn't want any blood money in the temple. That's a weird thing. They don't have any conscience problems over killing Jesus, but receiving blood money it is strange how our consciences can, can work that way. But anyway, they went out to buy a field with the money. Because they did not consider it to be their money, they bought the field in Judas's name. So when all the business was done of Sabbath, the Sabbath was over, they went out, and uh, bought a field, and in that potter's field they saw Judas's decomposed body. And because of how gross this was, the potter was quite willing to sell the property to them for 30 pieces of silver, and according to Matthew, it became a graveyard for poor people. And I think that's such an appropriate symbol. The wages of sin is death, but there's more. Though Luke leaves out the detail mentioned in Matthew that Judas hung himself, it's implied here that he fell from quite a height and that he was ripe enough that uh, when he fell, you know, his bloated body burst open and all of his intestines came out. Now, how'd you like to have that as an epitaph on your tomb? This guy not only made a mess of his life, he made a mess of his death, and he made a mess of the pavement. A uh, terrible epitaph to have happen. But Matthew says he hung himself. Verse 18 adds that he fell down. Falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. 
It was such a gross death that none of this could be hidden. All of the neighbors are inquiring and they find out from the potter exactly what had happened. The potter had to sign a title deed and he thinks, boy, this is rather strange that the priest is buying something with somebody else's money and that somebody else is rotting in my field. And so the story spills out. They have to admit, hey, it's not our money. This is Judas's money. And so the story comes out. It's blood money. And that's why the field was called Field of Blood. Now, here is the irony. Because the priests refused to take the money, because they purchased the field, because of the gross nature of this death, the very thing that Judas feared, public humiliation, public exposure, happens, and it happens to a far greater degree than if he had taken the way of the cross. It makes no sense to hide our sins. Samuel said, be sure your sins will find you out. You will get exposed eventually. It's much better to humble yourself in the way of the cross rather than take the infinitely more shameful way. And we know from the rest of Scripture, hell is going to be a place where your shame never ends. Never ends. So why do we avoid a temporary shame and guarantee an eternal shame? Why do we do that? Judas and Peter illustrate the truth that God humbles the proud and exalts exalts, um, uh, those who are humble. Verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and it did become desolate. Uh, It was a graveyard. Nobody lives there. Let no one live in it. Let another take his office. And of course, Matthias took his office. But uh, I'm not going to say much more on that point than that the wages of sin is death and desolation and loss. Uh, Last point, uh, if you go up to verse 25, this is the last reference to Judas in this chapter. To take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. That's an interesting expression, his own place. It's like it's calling that his home. Hell was Judas's home when he was a cute little boy. Hell was Judas's home when he was an effective preacher. Hell was his home when he was a wicked betrayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. His home never changed. His own place never changed. And it is not until we confess our sins to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be saved from my sins. I want to embrace and I trust Jesus Christ alone, his righteousness imputed to me that we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of life. Until that happens, our natural home is hell. That's exactly what the scripture says. And so it's my sincere prayer for you. If Some of you have never put your faith in Jesus that you would do so, that God, by His sovereign grace, would take you and usher you into the kingdom. And by the way, it's not God's purpose that we be sorrowing all the time. Sorrow is the doorway into that joy inexpressible and full of glory that Peter entered into uh, when he embraced uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as his own. Let me end with the words from a poem by William Blaine of South Africa. He had fallen away from the Lord just like Judas had, but in God's mercy he was restored. And the whole poem is an amazing testimony using Judas as the example uh, of what a misery it is to fall away from the Lord. But I just want to read the last three verses of that poem. It may not be for silver, it may not be for gold, But still, by tens of thousands is this precious Savior sold. 
sold for a godless friendship, sold for a selfish aim, sold for a fleeting trifle, sold for an empty name, sold in the mart of science, sold in the seat of power, sold at the shrine of fortune, sold in pleasure's bower, sold where the awful bargain none but God's eye can see. Then ponder, my soul, the question, shall he be sold by thee? Sold, O oh God, what a moment, stifled is conscience's voice. Sold, and a weeping angel records the awful choice. Sold, but the price of the Savior to a living coal shall turn with the pangs of remorse forever deep in the soul to burn. There may be somebody here who is still fighting against the Holy Spirit on something God has convicted you on. You don't want to take the road of the cross. That something, whatever it may be, is your 30 pieces of silver that you're trying to sell your Lord for, and actually you can't sell the Lord for anything. You're selling your own soul for that. And when we see some of the ridiculously small things that we are willing to sell our souls for, it just makes you realize how small and shriveled our souls really are. May God, by His grace, have mercy on our souls. May He subdue our flesh under His feet. And uh, may He take us through the valley of sorrow, through the valley of weeping, into the liberty and the joy of the sons of God. And that's really His, his desire for you to have that joy, that fullness of joy, taking you from bondage to sin and into the inexpressible glory that Peter talks about. May he do so. Amen. Father, what a serious passage this is, and I pray that we would be equally serious in examining our own hearts as to whether we are in the faith, whether we have truly embraced Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He is our only hope, Lord. We confess him as our only hope our only source of salvation, and we cling to Him. We cling to the cross of Christ, and we plead with You, Lord, keep us from stumbling. Do not allow us to go uh, the way of Judas. Pray for us, Lord Jesus, even as You prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And may each one in this congregation here uh, uh, travel the road safely all the way to heaven. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>